Welcome, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Today, we will be talking about a stage-based approach to treatment. Why did we decide to do this topic? Give me a little bit of information as to how you view the topic and some things that you really wanted to touch on today and why you feel like this topic is important. I think that staging your treatment, I think, just helps make your decision-making process a little bit more targeted toward that patient and helps you prevent a little bit of underdosing and or overdosing as patients go through the rehab. Yeah, I think that's spot on. thought it was important to discuss this topic because symptom irritability approaches are going to allow us to really use some of that comprehensive pain science that we described from episode one. And when I say pain science, not just pain neuroscience, but really pain science as a whole in the context of stress overload injuries, taking into account load tolerance, sensitization processes, and then using exercise to address and cause physiological changes during the pain experience and use it in a very cohesive manner within our plan of care. It really allows us to get away from focusing on pathoanatomy as the pain driver, and it allows us to focus on treating that individual patient and what their needs are at that time. Mike, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's going to be fun to kind of dive into, into dosing uh, this episode. We've talked about it a little bit in the past episodes. Uh, but I think I think this this episode will kind of open up a little bit more of a conversation into that and and how dosing is going to have to change based on all sorts of different aspects that are going to be present during care. So, right, and I think a good example of this before we jump into some of the uh, content that that we have planned is looking at a patient with a similar pathoanatomic diagnosis, but really having two very different needs. So. We know as clinicians that pathoanatomy doesn't necessarily dictate what the patient experiences. So you might have a patient both with diagnosed meniscus tears, but they might have very different presentations. One could be acute, swollen, may not be able to tolerate too much activity, and the other moderate to low irritability. And we really have to use our evaluation to determine if that meniscus tear is even relevant or if there are movement or load tolerance components to their experience. And really, they, they would get two different treatments just based completely on that symptom irritability. And oftentimes, I see clinicians who are asking for advice pretty much say, well, what, what are your best exercises for a meniscus tear? Or what are your best exercises for X diagnosis? And it's kind of interesting because as a, as a profession as a whole, we've kind of accepted that pathoanatomy isn't relevant to the patient experience, but then when it comes to our exercise prescription, we fall back on trying to correlate these pathoanatomic diagnoses with certain protocols or, or exercises. As far as the, the pathoanatomy stuff goes, I think, it, I think it's important to understand what you're dealing with, how your different exercises stress certain structures, understand the, the biomechanics behind your different exercises, what area of the joint's gonna be stressed, what area of the meniscus is gonna be stressed, if you're just guessing, oh, we're, we're going to just try all the exercises and, and, and see which one works, I think you're going to spend way too much time um, trying to figure out the exercises that work for that person. And you're not doing anything really much different than what a personal trainer would do if they're just trying to not have them hurt. So I think our, our knowledge in that helps kind of helps kind of set us apart in, in that realm. But yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's not a perfect meniscus exercise. There's not a perfect rotator cuff exercise. It's there, There's a lot more that goes into it. I think that's a good point you made because it really demonstrates the other extreme of this where some individuals may not necessarily focus on pathoanatomy at all and just say, well, we just got to help them exercise while this injury sorts itself out. 
And they don't really try to necessarily tailor that exercise approach to consider what's going on pathoanatomically. And to an extent, it is important, like you said, if, if certain areas of the meniscus are are involved, it's important to know when those areas might be engaged during certain exercise. And then at the same time, I think a comprehensive understanding of pain science should also involve the influence of that pathoanatomy on loading. So I think it's really important to find that balance between considering pathoanatomy and considering the patient's symptom irritability and allowing that to really guide your exercise prescription. So I don't think either extreme is ideal. What do you think about the current state of exercise prescription in the current PT practice? Do you think we overdose, underdose? What are your thoughts? I mean, I think generally we're going to underdose, but I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that we're dealing with people in pain. If someone someone initially comes to us in a high level of pain, we don't want to have them leaving in more pain. And you're going to run into that issue, a patient coming in to see you to get out of pain and leaving in more pain if you overdose. So, so I think that the hesitancy against overdosing is warranted in our profession. Um, if you're dealing with a strength and conditioning world, right, you overdose a little bit, someone just gets a little bit more sore than you want them to, and then your next training session, you, you have to take it a little bit easy. That's that's okay because their, their consequence of, of overdosing is a little bit of extra muscle soreness. Right. Our consequence of overdosing is my back was flared up and I couldn't walk for three days. So... From, from that side of things, I think we tend to underdose, and I think that that's okay, especially in that kind of acute pain population. Uh, the issue is when that, that runs farther into our rehab, whenever their, their irritability, as we're going to talk about a bunch today, starts to decrease, and we don't increase that intensity accordingly. Right. I, I really agree with a lot of those things that, that you just mentioned. As far as overdosing and underdosing, I would say that, that we do both. It really depends what stage they're in. Choosing the wrong exercise during the wrong stage or the wrong dose for a particular exercise during a stage is really going to determine whether you overload or underload. And I think throughout the different stages, we, we tend to fall into each category. I don't really think it's, it's absolute. Something that's important to highlight, like you mentioned, is during that high irritability phase, our goal should really be to get them out of pain. I'm not really focusing too much on necessarily building strength. I am looking at trying to get range of motion back, but it's not too aggressive as far as trying to crank to get more motion. What I've seen is as you decrease their symptom irritability, that range of motion just kind of comes along with it, especially in shoulders that are very high irritability. Just desensitizing them to a little bit of range of motion is going to help decrease symptom irritability and get better carryover for improving their range of motion. And then one last thing that I wanted to touch on, Mike, before you jump in here, is talking about that therapeutic window of loading. Usually, the higher the irritability, the more narrow that therapeutic window of loading might be. Especially um, with older adults, that's another characteristic that might make that therapeutic window of loading more narrow. So what I mean by that is that it may be really easy to underdose or overdose when that therapeutic window is narrow, especially with your high pain irritability, some of those patients with chronic pain. So I think really taking into account therapeutic loading, not only loading from a strengthening perspective. Yeah, I, I, I agree, especially with that kind of high irritability, kind of progressing to that moderate irritability patient. Our, our job is to get them out of pain. And that, that's why those patients came to see us. They said, I hurt. I don't want to hurt anymore. So erring on the side of slight underdosing is normally how I'll tend to go early on. Just get them doing something, I think, is the most important thing. 
I agree. I tend to usually underdose before I find that therapeutic window, just because especially if they're higher in ability or even on higher end of moderate, you know, once you overdose, you really can't take it back. It's kind of like cutting hair. Once you cut too much off, it's kind of hard to, you know, to go from there, but it's a lot easier to cut a little bit at a time and kind of see how it looks and then keep moving. So I tend to underdose and I always tell patients, hey, you may not even feel sore. You may not feel anything the next day. Part of us getting to know each other is me finding that baseline for your load tolerance and and really trying to figure out where that therapeutic loading window is. I think an important point that I wanted to touch on was getting away from the the very impairment-based approach. At some point during the stage rehabilitation, it comes into play, but it shouldn't dictate the entire plan of care. I think we've we've get, really got to get symptom irritability down before we transition to that impairment-based approach. And I think what I've seen a lot is you're weak, you just need to get strong. You're tight, you just need to stretch. So I think we need to really look at our patient in a more comprehensive pain science approach, really thinking about load tolerance in the context of movement, and then transitioning to strengthening to help improve force contributions as we progress to higher level movements. Most patients who come to us for pain really haven't exercised. There are our athletes or our weekend warriors, those that are that are fit. But I think an important point to look at is that when you look at actual muscle physiology and neuromuscular physiology, you actually don't see any muscle hypertrophy changes within the first six weeks of any exercise program. Changes that occur in those first six weeks are going to be related to improved motor unit recruitment, motor unit synchronization, improved cortical mapping of the movements in our motor cortex. So if you're thinking about a lot of our patients being either deconditioned or not having participated in exercise, those first six weeks are really all neuromuscular and nervous system changes. They're not even in a position to create hypertrophy just yet. So I think that's an interesting topic to think about when it comes to loading, just because what you're really doing is training movements. You're not necessarily creating hypertrophy at the beginning. So I think our progressions really need to focus on load tolerance at the beginning with a gradual transition to strengthening and addressing the impairments as their symptom irritability decreases. I think if you get a more moderate to low symptom irritability patient where the patient pretty much says, I have pain when I do this or after I do a certain activity for a certain period of time or for this long. With these individuals, you could probably jump right into your strengthening and more of your your movement-based approach. Prescribe them those 6 to 12 rep maxes depending on their goals. Look at contributors from their movement that are contributing to abnormal loading during an activity. Yeah, I agree. So you you bring up a good point of, you know, doing their 6 or 12 rep max or, or, or whatever the heck it is. Um, and I'm just curious, when, when you tend to introduce rep max testing like at, at what point along your kind of we'll, call, we'll say like the that ir- irritability scale like do you do you tend to introduce that and do you do it with everyone or you know do you tend to do it more with your younger more athletic population your weekend warriors or, or do you do it with that kind of older population as well so i really try to transition most individuals who are interested in it to that strength and conditioning type of of scheme just because rarely have I met an individual who says, you know, I'm out of pain, I'm done with therapy, I'm not going to exercise again, especially if I'm coaching and educating them from the beginning as far as how load tolerance influences their pain experience. A big question that I get very frequently is once someone's pain is gone, their functions improve, they say, will, will this come back? Is this something that I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life? The answer that I always give them is, your body's always constantly dealing with the stresses that are applied against it. If you don't do anything or you don't exercise, that load tolerance actually decreases a little bit more rapidly. 
your family comes in town, says, hey, let's go for a walk, the park, you do a two or three mile walk, and now you've got hip pain, low back pain. And it's just because your body is not used to that level of activity. So if you want to do all these spontaneous things in life, you really have to be prepared by maintaining your body's load tolerance via aerobic activity, strength and conditioning, weightlifting, flexibility activity. So I really try to encourage every patient to get to that strength and conditioning type of weightlifting scheme because it's really going to help prevent those future pain experiences from occurring. And I really try to set up that paradigm early on as far as the education goes and letting them know this isn't something that just came out of nowhere. It's very related to your load tolerance. And even though you feel good now, once you leave here, if you don't continue with these exercises or you don't continue this weightlifting activity, your load tolerance will decrease. And when you feel spontaneous or when you want to go do something that's a little bit more active than you're used to, you're more than likely going to generate a new pain experience. So I really try to encourage everyone to, to take up a weightlifting program and exercise program once they're done. And what do you do for that patient that uh, has no interest in joining a gym or getting a gym membership or anything like that? And it's just, you're going to work you know, within your home. What are your recommendations for them? I really don't try to force anything on anyone. I encourage them. I explain to them how regular loading is going to help them maintain their activity resiliency. My, my job is to educate them, provide them with the best information that I can, give recommendations. But usually I've found that people don't like to be told or, or force things. So there has to be a level of, of willingness. I really don't try to convince anyone of anything. I just provide the best information if they're interested. I help them organize and, and figure out how they can easily or, or most optimally achieve that goal. If someone prefers to exercise at home, I can obviously come up with, with modifications to help them achieve that. What do you typically do in these situations? I tend to do, I think, pretty similarly um, to you. Just kind of meet the patient with what they're willing to do. Um, fi figure out a program that's going to work for them. Okay, do you have any sort of exercise equipment at home? No? Well, all right. Well, why don't we work on things you can do next to your counter, things you can do using a chair, things you can do using your couch, um, things along those lines. It's like, you don't necessarily need a gym. We can still do some stuff and then talk to them about how much time they're willing to put into it um, and make sure that my program reflects that. So if they're willing to give me 10 minutes three times a week, I'm not going to have them doing really any small isolation exercises. It's going to be some sit to stand, some lunges. If you're sore, give, give yourself that rest day. And I think it's hard, especially when, when our patients are really ingrained in that pathoanatomic model. They tend to think there's a problem. Once that problem's resolved, I'm good to go. And they really don't understand load tolerance and load resiliency. And once you start to help them understand that, I think having to sell the value of exercise really is, is simple because they start to understand this is a way for me to change my physiology, change my, my load resiliency, and really continue to do what I want to do. And it makes more sense than just these random pathoanatomical changes making me feel pain. So I think when you set up that paradigm, it really helps the patients connect the dots as far as, as why you're doing what you're doing, how you make decisions, and, and really helping them understand their plan of care. Yeah, um, I agree. I think that, you know, that you say, I want you to keep coming in for, for three more weeks um, in order to kind of get your load tolerance up. Um, and I think that it's also important to address the fact that uh, we want to make sure that their exercises get to the point of being at the highest level that we want them to be at to maintain with their home program. And I think that that's something that I tend to touch on with my patients. Like, yeah, your pain's down. I want to make sure that we take you to the highest level that, that you want to be at with our exercises. And, that, and that'll allow you to maintain these gains moving forward and hopefully make it so you don't have to come back and see me again.
Right, absolutely. And I think another barrier when it comes to exercise prescription, load management, and really helping patients understand their plan of care is often you might get that patient during eval who says, well, got a rotator cuff tear or partial rotator cuff tear. I got some strength deficits. Just give me the exercises. I'll do these at home. I can just do these exercises at home. And I think a lot of patients have this idea of, I have this wrong with me, therefore there's a matching set of exercises to help me get better. And the exercise selection is important, but I think the load monitoring and the load management is more important or just as important as the exercise selection. I think educating patients about the real reason that you come in is less for me to count reps for you or watch you kick your leg on the table. I'm less interested in, in that. I know you could probably do that at home with some okay form after a few sessions of coaching, but what I really need you to come in for is to assess how you respond to the load. Imagine that each time you come in, I'm giving you medication in the form of exercise, and I need to see how you respond to changes in the dose of that exercise because it helps me make decisions, it helps me progress your activity, and it gives me more information regarding what state your body's in at that current period in time, and it really helps me progress you to that next level of, of where you want to be. So I think educating on that, that load management, that pain science paradigm really helps patients understand if I'm saying twice a week, this is why, so that we can really get you out of pain. I can monitor your, your symptom irritability and help you progress that load to get you out of this high pain state. Yeah. We already got into it a little bit, but I would really want to delve deeper into what we would classify as high, moderate, or low symptom irritability patients, how we personally classify them. I know there's studies out there, especially the STAR stage rehabilitation approach that looks at classifying and progressing patients in between those particular categories. But I wanted to get more of a personal touch and see how you make decisions, Mike, and talk a little bit about how I make decisions on, on transitioning these patients through different stages and what that means for our plan of care and exercise prescription. So those who aren't, aren't familiar with the uh, STAR ir irritability classification for the shoulder, uh, it's kind of broken down into high, moderate, and low. Uh, we'll talk about high and low and just kind of we'll leave moderate as in the middle just to save a little bit of time. Um, but your high pain is going to be greater than 7 out of 10. Pain is consistent uh, and or at rest. Pain before the end of your range of motion, active range of motion, less than passive range of motion, and high levels of disability. Your low is going to be low levels of pain, like less than or equal to 3 out of 10. No pain at rest, no pain at night, minimal pain with overpressure into those end ranges of range of motion. Active and passive range of motion are the same and low disability as far as how much it affects your day-to-day -day life. So as far as getting into how you prescribe and transition patients, Mike, do you, do you follow that pretty religiously? Do you have any personal touches that you add to it? And do you apply that irritability scale to other joints or do you mainly only use it for the shoulder? I don't use any guidelines religiously. I think that they're all exactly that. They're they're just guidelines to help kind of start your decision making process. Um, so I might use this a little bit more, a little more strictly, like my, my my first visit or two with a patient, just because it's it's a it's a good starting point, and I can justify why I'm starting them there. From there, we can kind of move through it at our own pace. I think that this guideline is like roughly applicable to other joints as well. If they move a little bit and it hurts a lot, high irritability. If they move a lot of bit and it hurts a little bit, low irritability um, and kind of everything in between. But but this framework is, is I think, a good starting point, generally what I will use to, to progress. 
Right. I would agree with that. I, I would say that I'm aware of the guidelines, but I don't necessarily have them memorized or or follow them to a T or reference them often when making decisions in the clinic. I, I kind of have my own personal analysis of, of how I make decisions when it comes to transitioning patients through different categories with those considerations in mind. I would consider anyone hired ability and this is in the context of the shoulder, someone comes in and they have less than 75% range of motion. They kind of have a lot of scapular elevation trying to assist them in, in getting that arm up, especially when active range of motion is painful with less than that 75%. And then when I try to go see what their their full passive range might be, I may not even be able to get full passive range. And it's it's really stopped more by pain than any actual true joint stiffness. You get more of that empty end field just because they either start guarding or it's too painful. So I really see if their active range of motion is severely limited, if their passive range of motion is at least moderately limited with pain at end range. And then when I try to transition them to moderate symptom irritability, I'll usually wait till they have probably greater than 135 degrees of shoulder flexion, closer to 140, 145. That's greater than that 75% active range. And maybe they get a little bit of pain at the end, but they've kind of gotten most of their motion back. And then they can also tolerate full pain for passive range of motion. I think passive range of motion is a great predictor of symptom irritability. And it also gives you insight into how confident or how apprehensive that patient is regarding movement. As their symptom irritability decreases, they're actually going to guard less. And as their pain irritability decreases, you'll just be able to take them deeper. So once someone has full pain-free passive range of motion, that's my green light. Transition them to that moderate category and start some low-level loading. And then once someone is low irritability, this is going to be like your classic shoulder impingement type scenarios where they have full active range, full passive range maybe a few degrees difference between sides, but they're really getting either end range motion or they're getting pain with uh, repetitive volumous activity. So these are going to be like, I have no pain at rest. And you know, if I do this particular movement or if I do this for more than a few minutes, I'll have pain. And then I think night pain is also a good indicator of symptom irritability. I really like passive range of motion, especially when they're high symptom irritability. I think immediately when we think of pain, we jump to to manual, but I think passive range of motion is really the one of those underutilized, I would consider it manual therapy techniques. I know, you know, you bill it as therapeutic exercise, but I really think it's one of the most underutilized, underrated ways to desensitize pain. And even active assisted range of motion, table slides with their arms supported on, on a slide board and then just having the trunk lead the, the motion and trying to decrease the muscle activity through the shoulder so that it's not painful, but at the same time getting some of that range of motion. I think a big pitfall of shoulder to rehab, especially high symptom irritability patients, is doing active assisted range of motion exercises that still involve too much shoulder muscle activity, especially like when you look at your pulleys, most individuals are guarding or even like your ball rolls on, on a wall. You know, we tend to go to those too quickly when someone's really high symptom irritability. Yeah, I think moving around the pain, I think is probably the most important part um, and figure out ways that they can do motions without pain. Okay, let's let's work on a squat. Okay, maybe if we do a little bit more of a glute dominant pattern, it doesn't hurt as bad. So why don't we work there? I think early on, it's more about finding ways that they can move pain free versus doing specific targeted exercises at their impairments, because um, you may end up just kind of poking the bear at that point. 
Right, right. I, I agree with that. And topic that I wanted to touch on was once they're transitioning from high to moderate, you really want to look at how you're loading. So typically what I've also seen is we think of isometrics as a way to decrease pain. And what I've seen is a lot of isometrics being used against a wall. And a wall is essentially an immovable object. So the amount of force being applied by the individual is really going to be variable as to their, their volitional muscle contraction. So someone could be pushing with 80% of their M MVI I see, or they could be pushing with 20%. It's really going to be patient dependent. And I think this adds a little bit too much variability in the loading than I would like. So what I typically do is if I do low to moderate duration isometrics, but against gravity, gravity is going to be a constant variable and someone holding their arm up against gravity is going to be a very consistent dose of loading that I can really use to help me dictate future volume or intensity progressions versus someone pushing into a wall very aggressively or very hard might have an increased chance of flaring their, themselves up. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? I think that that's a good point. Um, I tend to, I mean, I, I've historically done wall things for like simple rotator cuff activation. I just say, I want you to push. And if, you know, if you find that it's painful, just kind of back off a little bit and just hold it there. Um, but I think you, you bring up a good point of using gravity and using that for joints whenever you can. The issue comes with your bigger, you know, lower extremity joints. Sometimes gravity is a little bit too much. Right. So things along those lines. So just making sure that, that that's coming into play. But as far as like, you know, the, the shoulder goes, it's, and so it's a light extremity. So a lot of times find a range where it's pain free and then go there. And then um, do you tend to use more dumbbells or more like, you know, therabands and stuff in, in order to increase that? that resistance. Yeah. So when I'm transitioning from high to moderate, I'll typically just use gravity. I won't use any weights. And then as I start to load, I'll typically use dumbbells for loading, especially when you're aligned against gravity. It's a very consistent loading just because gravity is always constant. That load's always constant. Once you get into a resistance band, the amount of force production and the amount of tension and resistance through the band is going to be very dependent on the distance and the length of the band in addition to the tension of the band. So at least early on, that's a little bit too many differing variables for me. I'm kind of a, a control freak in that regard that I really like to, to monitor and measure dosing very specifically. So I like bands when it comes to utilizing them for eccentric control, just because of that elastic tension in the band requires a little bit more control on the return of the movement. So typically I start with more of dumbbells. And then once my loading needs to be less specific or that, that therapeutic window of loading is, is wider, then I feel more comfortable strengthening with, with some bands just because I don't need to be as specific with my uh, exercise prescription. So I think that's what really dictates which one I choose. And then and in regards to the lower extremity, I think that was a good point you made about gravity really not being enough. But I think using like a knee extension machine isometric, you know, maybe at mid range, 45 degrees and, and doing you know, whether it's a 10 second or 30 second hold, whatever the patient can tolerate. Let's move on to uh, manual therapy and their proposed mechanisms. Uh, how do you typically use manual therapy throughout your plan of care in regards to taking into account symptom irritability and how you make decisions as far as what you're going to use when you're going to use it? I think early on, I'll tend to use a little bit more manual. And sometimes that's for the potential proposed benefits that I think I might get from my manual therapy, whether it be, you know, trying to increase a little bit of joint motion if it feels super, super stiff so they can move a little bit better. Um, while we try and do some exercises, uh, maybe I just want to put my hands on them because I might want to get some of that kind of non-specific effect there. Or maybe I just want more time to just kind of talk to them and educate them about what I think is going on, kind of build some rapport, and I'll do something light as we're just kind of talking. Um, so during that high ir irritability phase, I don't think that there's anything wrong with putting on your hands a little bit more 
and kind of using that time for whatever you want, whether whether you have specific goals for your manual technique or it's just this is someone that I think might benefit from building a little bit of rapport with. And I think putting my hands on them might kind of open up the door for me to do so. Right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Usually with my high symptom irritability, individuals, shoulder or not, even some knees and hips sometimes, I think passive range of motion is just so underrated. I think repetitively exposing them to motion is going to help create a desensitizing effect. So what I'll usually do is I'll find an area that's close to end range where they get the pain and really try to repetitively move them in a pain-free passive range right before to where they get it. And then I do a high frequency oscillations when I get there. And this adds in a concept of of temporal summation. So what this means is as you repetitively apply a mechanical stimuli to an area, the messages that are being sent to the brain, if they're applied in a high frequency, are going to accumulate. And that temporal summation, that accumulation of those mechanical forces or mechanical stimuli, actually overwhelms the nervous system with information and creates an inhibitory effect to the area for pain modulation. And I think this concept is really applied to any mechanical stimuli. So when you look at isometrics, a sustained mechanical stress to an area, It's going to create the same effect. It's going to cause that area to be overwhelmed with information, the nervous system to be overwhelmed with information and create descending inhibitory effects to the area. And I think the same thing applies for any soft tissue massage. I personally don't use soft tissue very often. But I think it has a similar effect is that that repetitive touch, that repetitive mechanical stimuli causes the nervous system to almost downregulate and cause descending inhibition of the area that's being stimulated for short term pain effects. So when you're looking at the high symptom irritability, I think taking into account some of those pain neuroscience changes or ways that you can change how the nervous system responds to stimuli to create a certain effect is very beneficial. And then once they transition to that moderate symptom irritability, I'm probably looking more at your classic orthopedic principles as far as like joint mobility deficits, maybe uh, restricting emotion, maybe poor scapular kinematics contributing to poor shoulder emotion, whatever it might be. And then I typically use more like mobilization with movements at this point, really trying to facilitate certain movement or really trying to facilitate a motion to create pain-free movement or allow someone to exercise pain-free. Yep. I agree. I think, I think those mobilization with movement can, can be very beneficial. And I think that if, if you find that, okay, that seemed to make it so this person was able to tolerate exercise a lot better today, there are definitely some, some ways you can kind of teach a patient to do that themselves. And that's kind of cool. I'm, I'm a big fan of that because patients can't take me with them. So I don't want them to rely on my manual techniques to be the thing that they think is getting them better. So I, I think painting that in, in a good light. And I, and I, I tend to set that expectation early. I say you know, early on, things are kind of flared up. I'll probably put my hands on you a bunch more. But as we go throughout, I'm going to be putting my hands on you, you know, less and less and less with the goal of getting similar benefits to what I can get with my hands with your exercises that will eventually add in. So I'll go through and I'll introduce, you know, maybe a, a mobility type exercise and say, all right, so so th- what this is going to do is this is going to take the place of this manual technique that I was doing or this, you know, strengthening thing is going to help kind of get a little bit of an extra effect into this technique that I was doing, maybe it's a thoracic extension type thing. And I want them to work on an overhead squat at the wall or anything along those lines. I think patients actually respect that as well because they say, oh, this guy isn't just fishing for money, trying to get me in here all the time. He wants me to actually be able to handle this thing on my own. I think that 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 goes a long way with interacting with our patients. Right. And I think looking at 
manual therapy from a pain science paradigm when it comes to looking at at loading, which is really the underlying concept of what we're doing with the rehabilitation program is controlled progressive loading. So for someone who's high irritability, at that point, a muscle contraction, the pores created by a muscle contraction might be too high where it's not therapeutic just yet. So passive range of motion and low level uh, grade one, two manual therapy to an area is our way to apply a lower dose controlled mechanical stimuli to an area to help build load tolerance. And I think it's important to remember load tolerance is not only in regards to a muscle contraction, but also in regards to tissue lengthening. So you always want to strengthen the muscle from a contraction standpoint, but you also want to build load tolerance in regards to lengthened positions as well. And then if, you know, if you're looking at a particular injury, for example, like hamstring strains, you may want to improve resiliency to lengthening, improve resiliency to contraction, and then combine those and have it contract from a lengthened position to get the the best carryover to sprinting. So I think really looking at loading and, and figuring out, is it necessarily a strength or force production issue right now, or is it really more of, I just need to gradually load them so we can get to the place where we can start addressing potential impairments and, and any movement dysfunctions, quote unquote. I know we talked about that last episode, but any, any movement variables, I think is a better way to say it that may be contributing to, to what they ex- were experiencing or, or how they got into that painful state. And I think one thing that I wanted to touch on here, Mike, before we move on, is that once the patients get to that lower end of moderate and into the low irritability, that's when I typically start the strength and conditioning principles. They come in the door, they say, I have no pain at rest, felt good after last visit. That's when I start trying to find those, those rep maxes I really start to get more into those strength and conditioning principles to help build resiliency to activity. And at this point, they might be, you know, three or four weeks into the plan of care and might be in a better position where those hypertrophy changes can really start to take hold as my my dosing of the load falls more in line with, with those strength and conditioning principles. Mike, do you use this staged irritability approach with chronic pain, or do you feel like this approach really is only applicable to your more predictable, acute, gradual onset, immediate pain? I think that it definitely comes into play with with your chronic pain person. Um, as we talked about kind of in, in episode one, it's I think chronic pain has a lot more to unpack. But I think that kind of staging them is absolutely appropriate and should be and should be included for sure. Because when they're super, you know, th- their entire life has been highly irritable for the past, you know, however long, you know, three plus months or whatever it is, or sometimes a lot, a lot longer, 20 years, they've been kind of stuck in that high ir- irritability phase. So I think normally I'll start with them exercise prescription just like I would um, with an acute person in in that high high level of irritability. I would expect if I am going to get that person into that low to moderate irritability classification with that chronic pain, probably going to take a lot longer. And I think kind of paying that expectation for yourself and them is also important. But I think that you know I think that with the acute pain that it's it probably comes into play a little bit more so than with that chronic pain, just because I think the chronic has so many other factors to, to kind of take into consideration. Um, but general exercise prescription, I think is still going to follow it for the most part. And I would agree with that. I would say that I also use it with individuals with chronic pain and, and those that are more deconditioned. I think a lot of them could potentially fall into that higher ability classification. I think the caveat with these particular patients is going to be, like we discussed on previous episodes, that mismatch between perceived and actual load tolerance. So that's going to be more your, your fear avoidant, biopsychosocial approach type patients that they probably can do more than they think they can. But I think starting them off with, with where their perceived load tolerance is and and making that your starting point for the exercise progression is probably going to be the best route to take. I 
utilize a lot of low-level muscle activation exercises with these patients. I really use it as, as loading. So I really try to introduce this to create gradual loading, and it helps me open up that conversation as far as talking about those pain neuroscience changes as far as, like you mentioned, the alarm system and amplified pain like we talked about in the first episode. Because the main question that a lot of people have when they have pain with these lower-level muscle activation exercises, they say, I'm literally squeezing my stomach or I'm squeezing my, my glutes or my, my butt cheeks. How on earth is this causing me pain? And it really helps open up that conversation between the brain's perceived load tolerance and the actual anatomical physiological load tolerance of the area and really opening the conversation of, do you think that squeezing your abdomen is physically causing damage or harm to your body? Or do you think that more than likely it's something that your nervous system is not used to and that you've had this going on for a long time? So your brain is almost perceiving unfamiliar information as painful just because that entire processing of, of information is, is amplified due to how long you've been dealing with this issue. So I think it helps open up conversations, especially early on. And then I really try to do gentle, active range of motion. For example, someone who's fearful of bending forward, I might have them sit in a chair and do a forward ball roll, having their arms supported on the ball to help really facilitate that motion and really have them build confidence in, in engaging in certain movements that they might be fearful of. So I think that's the only difference with, with this group is that their irritability classification may be more based on their perceived low tolerance rather than their actual load tolerance. But for those individuals that have chronic pain that are deconditioned, there might actually be a match. They may just have high pain or high symptom irritability, and I would probably use the exact same approach with them in that case. So Mike, yep. um, give me a, a summary here on everything we talked about, some points that you really wanted to, wanted to hammer home here as far as uh, why, we, why we did this episode and why we uh, really wanted to bring light to this, this particular topic. Uh, yeah, I think that one of the biggest thing is it's really important to understand your goals. And so if you're, if someone comes in in high pain, your goal is to calm that pain down early on. My goal with that person is not going to be to get them strong. So I'm not really concerned about adding in strengthening. Um, so if you, if you look at a patient and know exactly what your goals are for that visit and where you want to get to long-term, I think it kind of helps you and your exercise prescription and your manual therapy prescription and all along those lines. And then we kind of talked about dosing. And so if you do think that someone needs to get stronger and their benefits are going to come from getting stronger, make sure that you're dosing that appropriately. In that same light, if you think that someone needs to get better, stronger long-term, but they're in high pain short-term and in introducing some of those strengthening exercises might be detrimental in, in the short-term while their pain's still high, Maybe just hold off. You don't don't get too excited and 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 poke the bear a little bit too much because patients want to feel better when they leave us, and I think that that's really important, um, especially early on in the rehab process. That if they're in a lot of pain when they leave our doors, they should be feeling better than when they came in and more optimistic about their recovery. And I think if you push it a little bit too much early on because they need to get stronger, need to get their range of motion back now, you'll tend to have them leave in more pain and they won't want to buy in and then you'll miss a good chance to help this person feel better. Right. I agree with all that. I really think uh, using this approach is, is going to help us as a profession get away from focusing so much on pathoanatomy and really addressing each individual patient complaint. And it also gives us guidance on, on when to switch gears during our rehab. It's going to really allow us to realize that 
sometimes low-level muscle activation exercises are, are okay. They have a therapeutic effect in regards to loading and build, building resiliency to loading and that they shouldn't be frowned upon necessarily as underdosing. Again, if you stay in that low-level loading as their symptom irritability decreases, then yeah, more than likely you're underdosing, but I think there is an appropriate time and place for these exercises. And then there's other times when it's appropriate to switch gears to your strength and conditioning principles and really start to overload and challenge our patients and get into some higher level movements. This episode was just really important because I think the world of PT has almost become polarized with some of those that are more in like the movement control clan and then some of those that are more in the strength and conditioning clan and and everyone's saying, well, they're overdosing, they're underdosing. And it really just depends on what stage of rehab that patient's in. And at the same time, I think pendulum might have swung too far in the other direction with PTs now are saying, well, we need to really overload. We need to make the things harder. And they might be over-progressing, overloading too quickly. And by the end of the plan of care, the patient says, well, I can do these really difficult exercises, but my pain is really unchanged. So I think those are just things to consider. I think both worlds bring a lot of value. And I think both worlds should be, or both principles and mindsets should be applied to even the same patient, depending where they are in their rehab. Their rehab shouldn't really stay the same throughout the entire plan as far as creating a linear strengthening progression. If they're hired ability, you might see some more low-level loading desensitization range of motion. That entire block of exercises might get discharged. And then I'll start some more isolation, building load tolerance to resistance, and then as I get to that lower irritability, going to, towards my compound movements, functional movements, getting those six to 12 rep maxes, depending on their goals, and then really maybe even looking at their movement if I feel like that could be a contributor. But I think each of those snapshots has a, has a role in rehab and each of those mindsets has a role. So you don't really have to choose between the two worlds to create a cohesive and forward-looking plan of care for that patient. I think as the patient's experience changes, they're going to need both approaches and, and they're going to need them to be utilized at the right time. So I think explaining to your patient some of these pain science concepts, again, not overwhelming them with the nitty-gritty of pain neuroscience, but really in regards to load tolerance, load progression, activity resiliency from day one, and then helping them understand how you make decisions regarding the exercise progression um, and exercise prescription in regards to their irritability and load tolerance is going to help them understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. And I think it's going to help them get away from that pathoanatomic diagnosis. And I think if we can do this on a large scale as a whole over time, not only clinicians, but patients are going to start to realize the value in coming to therapy, the value in our expertise, and really start to get away from thinking that their pathoanatomy dictates what they experience. Could not agree more. Mike, any well, final thoughts? Um, I think that obviously there's always more that you can say about a topic and there's a lot more, you know, to, that we could kind of unpack, you know, what, like you always say, you know, I mean, you could probably talk for four or five hours on, on any given topic. Um, yeah, I think we touched on a lot of good points and uh, I'm excited to uh, keep having these conversations moving forward. Great. All right. Sounds good. Next week, we're going to be talking about complicated post-op patients and patients without protocols using our clinical reasoning to improvise. So this is going to be looking at patients who either, one, get sent to your clinic and the communication may not be as, as good as you like, and we're going to have to kind of take it in stride and create our own protocol for a specific patient. And I think this can be overwhelming, especially if it's a surgery that you haven't really seen, or if it's a more complicated surgery, like let's say a multiple ligament knee injury, or um, maybe something that you haven't necessarily heard of. So this is something we'll dive into deeper next week. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.